0: This is Living While Dying, an ALS story from Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Kathy Warzer. Toward the end of the summer of 2014, Bruce Kramer and I were deep into the writing of his candid memoir on lessons learned while death patiently lurked in the shadows. He showed enormous stamina, itself, even while struggling to get enough air normal. to speak.
1: It's the process of engaging with what is being lost now. Which, are water. I just need to stop. Okay. This
0: is going to be like Johnny Cash. Sure, I understand. Of course, Bruce was referring to music legend Johnny Cash. Cash spent his final days recording songs for a remarkable compilation of albums, the American series. The last one, Ain't No Grave, was recorded less than four months before Cash's death in September of 2003. Cash at the time was so physically depleted he could only sing in a whisper and had to rest between bars of a song to catch his breath. Talented audio engineers and editors made him sound a bit more like his old self.
1: There ain't no grave can hold my body down When I hear that trumpet sound I'm gonna rise right out of the ground Ain't no grave can hold my body down
0: Stopping my audio recorder and starting again and again between sips of water is how Bruce Kramer and I recorded several of our radio conversations in the summer of 2014.
1: Well, I think right now you can hear the weakness in my voice and it' indicative of the weakness in my body. Um, that weakness of voice is a really new experience for me. I have always, well, I was I was a voice major. I've always used my voice in ways that um, helped me to get what I thought I wanted. And I've always had, um, I thought, a rather powerful voice. Now, that voice is no longer available. And the question then is, well, what kind of a person are you without that voice? You certainly aren't going to be able to exercise the the voice the way you used to. and the the answer that comes to me is um, is it's so obvious that i i I just almost have to laugh. It's um, that in the softening of my voice is the sharpening of my ears, that I, I hear things better. I'm so much more attuned to um, what others are saying and what they're feeling. It's like my ears can, um, can pick up on the mood that they carry. Um, like my ears almost can see instead of just here. And it it comes because I have stilled the voice that I had, which was drowning all of that information out. To me, this is transformational. And I'm I'm thinking, oh, I wish I'd have known this sooner. I'd have been a much better listener.
0: You're an excellent listener. With your voice softening, Bruce, does that mean also beyond your increased power of listening and listening well, um, will you have to rely on your eyes next, eye gaze technology, in order to speak?
1: That's the theory. I, uh, I admit that there's a part of me that really hopes I die before I have to. I don't see myself using it as um, Stephen Hawking has, where he's expressing incredibly complex thoughts through eye gaze technology. I'm not Stephen Hawking.
0: Would you like water? Yeah. ALS always left Bruce a little bit tired, and growing difficulties breathing while sleeping increased the fatigue. The diaphragmatic pacing system in his abdomen had been helpful, but Bruce needed more assistance.
1: Pull it to hold it and just let it do what it does. That's called BiPAP? That's called BiPAP.
0: I had heard of BiPAP, which is a cousin to CPAP, the machines many people use to deal with sleep apnea. BiPAP is a little different. It's a more active system. Instead of a full face mask, Bruce's system used a relatively small pad placed up against his nostrils and held in place by a lightweight head harness. Bruce used to joke that the hose that ran from the nostril pad to a portable machine made him look like a small elephant, and he tried to brace me for the shock of seeing him wearing it for the first time. Bruce opted for the smaller nose pillow because he wanted to be able to talk. He was understandable, but it sounded as though he had a bad head cold. Without the machine, his voice was barely above a whisper.
1: BiPAP actively puts air into your lungs, and so it allows me to get a deeper breath, and it gives me more volume when I talk, and also I'm much more comfortable because I'm getting the deeper breath. How
0: does this work with your existing diaphragmatic pacing system that you had installed at the Mayo Clinic last year?
1: Gosh, it makes me sound like a used car. (laughs) I have to make the BiPAP work with the DPS. They're out of sync with each other. So I have to be the one that synchronizes it. So I can't just kind of sit and talk or anything. I have to be thinking about it.
0: Is it difficult to talk?
1: Not so much. No, I I can still talk, but um, I just have to always be paying attention.
0: Is this similar, then, to a ventilator? Because you and I have talked about your uh, reluctance to use a ventilator.
1: It's external. It's not invasive. It doesn't rely on a tracheotomy, on a hole in your neck that they are then going to hook into. The hardest thing with it, in terms of communication, is with my computer. I had to make a whole new profile that I call the BiPAP profile, because when I say the word died, it thinks I said the word died. And when I say the word mob, it thinks I said the word bob, and on and on. So it just makes me sound like I have a bad cold.
0: What continues to amaze visitors is Bruce Kramer's active engagement and focus, even as he becomes weaker because of the advancing ALS. He spent the summer writing a book that'll be published by the University of Minnesota Press next year. He's kept an active schedule of meetings ranging from visits with leaders in the local health care community to numerous friends and family members.
1: The busyness of my schedule is really in contrast to the quietness I feel. I do believe that I'm closer to the end than, than I probably would like to be, but I've been using the time to say the things that I really feel need to be said, to express gratitude, to tell people that I love them, people that you wouldn't normally say that to. But um, the fact is, is that you develop these relationships, and and then we forget to tell each other how we feel. I'm looking for... um, the alignment of love and gratitude and acceptance, and trying to help people as they come in to see me to have a little space for that in their lives. If they could find that same space for acceptance and gratitude, maybe it doesn't take facing something like ALS to bring that along. And maybe that's an opportunity for tremendous growth as a human. But wouldn't it be exhausting, Bruce, in your current
0: situation, to try to help a friend as they come to see you, try to help them accept your situation? I would think that would be a very difficult thing
1: to do. It is. And I, and I don't feel responsible for their acceptance. But I, I feel like, you know, it, it's like I've been given this gift. And it's something that I would like to share. It's not something that is meant for me to hoard, but rather to give back. And so in that respect, yes, expressing the feelings and hoping that others can see this, that does have some energy use, no question. But at the same time, it's really the way I want to use my energy. I think that we have this myth, particularly in Western culture, that death is something that it's to be avoided at all costs, and it's something that is a horrible thing. And yet, what I have learned in this past four years is that death focuses you. It brings what's important right to the front, and it cuts through the things that just really don't need to take priority anymore. And in that respect, wouldn't it be nice if we could live our lives that way, where we have the honesty with each other to actually express ourselves, express our love, to learn to accept the fact that we are all going to die, and to be grateful for the time together.
0: Somebody asked me recently, Bruce, about your family and how far have they come in accepting your impending death? How are they doing?
1: Well, I'm happy to report that they're not real happy about it. (laughs) But I mean that in the best of ways. My sons are just... They're just such remarkable young men, in this in this respect. My son David comes over now, three times a week, and he shaves me. It's such an intimate thing to do, to shave another person, and for me, you know, to turn that over to somebody with a single edge safety razor. Of course, I have to really trust, but it's so gentle, and I feel so grateful that. We get this time together, and I know that we would not be this intimate with each other if it weren't for the fact that I am facing my death soon. My son John is so loving, and he's always looking for some piece of music that he can share with me. And then their wives, my daughters in law, are just the most beautiful people, so caring. And they tell me they love me every time they come to see me. And then, of course, I have this granddaughter. And uh, she doesn't know, of course, what's going on. I think she wonders, what's wrong with that guy? He's the only one that doesn't pick me up and hug me. So really, the family is doing very well. I haven't spoken about Ev, but Ev is, is just, she's remarkable. We probably cry together once a day. And I'm glad for that, because it, it's a release. And it doesn't mean we're not sad. We're, we're sad beyond belief. But in the end, when this is all said and done, you will be able to look at this family and say, there was love. There was great love. And that love will continue. So I think we're doing okay.
0: And it was that love that sustained Bruce throughout his life with ALS. Throughout the course of our radio conversations, every so often a listener would write to ask if Bruce had ever contemplated suicide, given the merciless march toward death by ALS. Suicide was out of the question. Bruce Kramer wanted to live as full a life as he could in the time he had left. In October of 2014, Bruce watched with great interest an intense national debate surrounding a young woman. 29-year-old Brittany Maynard wanted to take a lethal dose of doctor-prescribed medication in Oregon. Maynard was given little time to live after being diagnosed with an especially vicious form of brain cancer. She decided to die before she became incapacitated because she felt she would have suffered even in hospice care for weeks or possibly months while her family watched her agonizing decline. Maynard died on October 1, 2014, surrounded by her loved ones in accordance with Oregon state law regarding death with dignity. During that debate, some attention was paid to hospice. Hospice is an end-of-life care philosophy that focuses on managing pain and other discomfort while also attending to the spiritual and emotional needs of the dying patient. The modern hospice movement came to the U.S. in the early 1970s. Kate Cummings is the director of Fairview Hospice and Palliative Care Programs in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is really important to identify what are those components with a person's um, physical illness and state that are really going to be benefiting that person's comfort versus extending one's life or causing greater burdens. Because we can do things that are really more problematic than helpful, like, We've seen on occasion where someone might say, Oh, you know, I need fluids, give me an IV. Well, that IV fluid isn't necessarily going to be helpful because what it's going to do is cause more fluid in the lung, might cause more fluid in one's extremities, and that won't be something that can be alleviated for comfort, just create more problems. So then, You try to chase it maybe with another medication or something. Patients who are facing death can be in hospice for up to six months, but can cycle in and out for a
1: year or more. When we met with the hospice people, I made sure I asked them, now, if I'm not dead in six months, does that mean you have to kill me?
0: (laughs) That's Bruce Kramer, quirky sense of humor intact who's in the latter stages of ALS. That's a disease that lays waste to the body's major muscles from those that help him move to those that help him swallow. Right now, he's using a BiPAP breathing machine. He recently decided to enter a hospice program but continues to get care in his home.
1: They have a a broad range of services. They have a broad range of expertise. And their focus is uh, comfort and living well until um, you're not going to be alive anymore. Well, that's been my focus for four years. So it's not that this is a big change for me, but I do have to say that by getting hospice involved with us, uh, we both feel like it has added a certain level of uh, organization and just a sense of of, uh, control back over the way that we're doing things.
0: You realize, of course, that when listeners just heard you say, I'm in hospice, most individuals would think, oh my gosh, hospice, Bruce must be very, very close to the end. Is that what it means?
1: In some ways, yes, it does mean that. Um, we, We have known that from the beginning, right? Right. But in a way, it just slightly turns the focus of the care. Now, with ALS... The focus of the care has been mostly palliative anyway. It's been mostly to try to treat symptoms, relieve pain, uh, keep me from extreme discomfort. And that's pretty much the focus of hospice. But by identifying hospice, it also means that there are certain things that just become a lot easier. If I need something medically, I call hospice. Hospice takes care of it. If I need uh, a certain medication, hospice delivers it. If I need to consult about uh, a certain kind of procedure, hospice takes care of that. In a lot of ways, hospice is very similar to what I've been doing uh, with the ALS clinics.
0: I think many people tend to think of hospice as it's the last resort, it's the last stop. And at least for my family, uh, the death of my father happened so fast. He was in hospice for maybe, for what that meant, for just a couple of days. Is it then possibly more beneficial to think about hospice well in advance?
1: I have a nurse Fred, who works in one of the local hospice facilities, and their facility is 99% occupied. And the average stay is two days. And what that tells me is, first of all, it tells me that people really aren't thinking about this. They just don't believe that death is going to be a part of their lives. Because of ALS, I've had the, been given the great gift of knowing that it is a part of my life and that I need to be aware of that and I need to live with that fact. I think... One of the things that, by making the decision to go into hospice, we also felt that we wanted to get into it early enough on that um, they could help us to manage not just uh, the life that I'm living now, but the death that I want to have. And that part is as important, I think, as the life that you live. I want a good life. And I want a good death.
0: A good death. That's when our conversation turned to Brittany Maynard's decision to sidetrack her struggle and take the lethal dose of medication.
1: I, I don't think it's appropriate for me to second-guess another person's pain, uh, another person's uh, sense of, um, of how they want to do their own ending. It, in many ways, is the ultimate control um, to say that this is the way I want to go when that time comes, I'm going to die. We all are going to die. Why don't we approach it as the gift that it is, the opportunity to, in many ways, summarize the lives we've been given. And um, so, Brittany Maynard has made a choice. And I think she's made that choice because she feels she has no other choice. I'm sorry for that. Not because I think she's wrong, but because it seems to me that that's symptomatic of a society that doesn't know how to do death. It's been said that
0: those who are facing death start looking for meaning in their lives. You've done that. I know you have. Have you come to conclusions when it comes to that question?
1: You know, that's a harder question than it sounds. Yes, I've done that a great deal. I think from the moment I was diagnosed, I began to ask the question, what does this mean? And what meaning might I be able to have in the time that I have left? I have devoted my life to education. I have always believed that a society that cannot give its very best for its children is a society that really needs to look at itself. And I have, in my entire professional career, have always thought that children should come first and have uh, dedicated myself to that. That has deep meaning to me. But in the end, as I approach the last months of my life, What really has the deepest meaning of all is the love that I share with my family, my friends, my granddaughter. These are things that in many ways, without them, my life would be beating less. So I think if I were to um, be able to wave a magic wand, I wouldn't ask people to do things the way I'm doing them. But what I would do is ask people to examine their own lives and ask themselves the question you asked me, what really gives you a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose? And I think most of us, when we are honest and truthful about that, we would turn to things that impending death really focuses. I can't stress enough this feels like loss and it feels like sorrow and it is but it's also great joy and it's kind of in a lot of ways it's like fireworks you know, you you shoot the rocket into the air and you anticipate and then boom it's this beautiful sparkle and then it's gone and I think that's what focusing on your death and how it focuses your life. It's a lot like that.
0: On the next Living While Dying, an ALS story. Bruce's beloved church choir pays a home visit just before what would turn out to be Bruce's last Christmas.